Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new teaching that, is, that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what those things mean. Now all these Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, staying in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is it served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or an imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he is a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Uh, this week I was having lunch with a pastor friend who, uh, we, and we were talking about, you know, debriefing over Easter. Because, I mean, that's kind of the big, you know, big weekend for anybody who's a pastor and, and the church life. And, uh, and as we were eating lunch and sharing stories, <clears throat> he... Um, he shared with me a story from uh, some time back, I guess in, in past years. He was uh, once invited to preach at a church that did not have a pastor to fill the pulpit. And it was the equivalent of this Sunday. It was the Sunday after Easter. He had been asked to come and, and bring the message. And, and so he went in and he preached in, in this church, a, a church here in, the, in, the, in our county, uh, a very you know solid orthodox sermon on the resurrection and and why the resurrection is so important and how it is such good news for uh, the lost and also for the Christians and and why we should be stressing it. Well, after the service and the, the service sermon seemed to be well received, but after the service there was a, a you know in a room with a lot of people talking and catching you know fellowshipping. The, the guy, the leader in the church who invited him to fill the pulpit came in and, in a, and you know, got attention in a very loud voice, said essentially, you know, um, you know, pastor, everybody here knows that I totally disagree with everything you said this morning. 
which is always a good post-sermon critique, right? And I, everybody here knows that I totally disagree with everything that you, you said this morning. I, I, I love Jesus. I think he was a great teacher and a great man. And, and what he says inspires me to be a better person. Our world would be better if we followed his teachings. But this idea that he, you know, was God who was, died and then was resurrected, this is absolutely ridiculous. He died and he's rotted in the ground. What do you have to say to Christians like me? Well, as he shared that with me and he presented that question, you know, my mind went into what would I say? And and I got to tell you, my gut reaction in my brain, you know, I heard foghorn leghorn say, well, well, Bubba, you ain't a Christian. That's what I would say. Or essentially, you know, if, What I would say to you is that you need to ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and to receive him into your life as your Lord and Savior. And until you do that, and until you believe in the resurrection, please stop calling yourself a Christian. Because you aren't a Christian if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was my gut reaction of what I would say. But I asked him, what did you say? And, uh, and so he then began, he sat there for a minute and he said, well, I was kind of perplexed. And then I, I finally, I just, I started with what I would say to you and to Christians like you is, I feel an overwhelming sense of sadness for you, for what you're missing out in this life and what you're going to miss out in the life to come by what you believe. And then he went on from there. And he began to talk about his answer. You know, my, my gut reaction answer is an example of what we call confrontational evangelism. It doesn't surprise some of you that that would be my gut reaction, right? And, and by the way, those of us who've been Christians for many decades, we learned to evangelize. We learned to interact with Christians or to people, with people in that manner. And it can be a very effective way of interacting with lost people, especially those who were raised in church, maybe as children or young people, and are what we might call quasi-believers. In some way, they, they, they know the story of Christianity, they believe it in some respects, but they just haven't repented and given your life to Christ. And so calling them to repentance and boldly calling them to believe and stop what they're doing, that can be very effective with that kind of person who has that Judeo-Christian worldview, who understands and has that paradigm for looking at life. It shares a lot of similarities with the Old Testament prophets. So the Old Testament prophets, if you read the prophets, they were like that, right? But they were talking to quasi-believers of the Old Covenant. The children of Israel who, who knew and who had been raised and they, they knew what was right and what was true, but they were just sinfully, sinfully, willfully rejecting it. And so confrontational evangelism has its place. But as our nation becomes more of a postmodern, post-Christian nation, my buddy's approach is much, much better. Rather than it being confrontational evangelism, it's an example of what I would call dynamic evangelism. 
And, and, and it's what you see Paul employing here in Acts chapter 17 as he's interacting with the Athenians who also rejected the gospel completely, didn't even know it, much less have that you know, the basics of it as their worldview. It was totally foreign to them, these concepts. And, and so as he interacts with them with this approach, what, what I'm just calling dynamic evangelism, is something that we need to seriously look at and consider because what we see in this passage is extremely relevant as we are in a society that has been going through a massive transition as a nation that was founded upon Judeo-Christian values with worldviews and a common paradigm, and now it's, it's not. So we need to look at this. So let's jump right in. First thing I want us to see this morning is that dynamic evangelism is as needed in America today as it was in Athens 2,000 years ago. Everybody as much. And then to catch us up with where Paul is, a couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 16. He'd come across the uh, a GNC from Asia Minor to Greece, started up in Philippi. Remember, he got in jail with the Philippian jailer, and he, he, he was persecuted there. He left, went to a couple of other cities, and churches were planted. But again, his life is threatened, and so uh, Timothy and Silas and his compatriots, they put him on a boat, and they send him by sea to Athens, and they say, we'll catch up to you. We'll catch the train, we're gonna, or we'll walk, okay? And they're going to go by land, so in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting, he's waiting on these guys to, to catch up with him. It's going to be several weeks before they can make that trip. That's how long. But now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of what? Idols. Idols. The city was full of idols. Idolatry. Now when we think of idolatry, we think of totem poles. We think of people out in the bush you know, you know, chanting and going in circles, maybe sacrificing animals, or we think of a Buddha belly or something, you know, some, we think of, that's idolatry. But idolatry is something much more basic. Let me give you a, a working definition. Why don't you read it out loud with me here? Ready? Here we go. Idolatry is trusting, serving, or giving worship to someone or something that is not God. Idolatry is trusting, serving, or worshiping something or someone that is not God. Idolatry is right in the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. You know this is an important issue to God. After he says, I am the God who brought you out of, of, of Egypt, the second and third commandments all are revolving around this idea of idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am what? A jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Idolatry. God says is a manifestation of hatred towards him. And Athens is full of idols. Now, what did their idolatry look like? It, it kind of fit within different categories. 
So for example, you had religious idolatry, and many of us are familiar with the Greco-Roman world. They had the pantheon of gods. There were 12 major gods, you know, Zeus and Hera and, and all of them. But now this is Athens. It's actually named after one of the gods, Athena, the goddess of war and wisdom. The Parthenon, some of you may have visited it there before, this massive temple built in 400 BC in the 400s BC. It was a temple of worship to Athena, and in the middle of that temple, this is a rendition of what it looked like, was a 40-foot statue of Athena that was made out of ivory overlaid with tons of gold. And people would come, and they would worship Athena in the Parthenon, in this temple. But throughout the city, there were all kinds of other god, statues of gods and goddesses, the major gods, the minor gods. And, and all of this was done because this was the religious life of the people. And in their religious system, we worship the gods in order to get the life that we want to have here on earth. And we worship and appease the gods so that they don't curse us or hurt us here on earth and we secure a place for ourselves in eternity, in paradise, Hades, right? You had the, 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 the Elysian fields, the good part of Hades, and then you had the bad part of Hades, like hell. And, and so they worshiped their gods and they sacrificed and they went through all the ceremonies and you know, went to the temples and gave and, and, and all of this, major gods, minor gods, religious idolatry. There was also philosophical idolatry. Again, how do I have a good life? This is a, a burning question back then, burning question still today, right? How many of us want a good life? Raise your hand. Come on, don't, all right, let me ask you like this. How many of you want a lousy life? Raise your hand. Okay, now let me rephrase that again. How many of you want a good life? Don't be afraid to admit it. We all want a good life, right? It beats the alternative, <laughs> Right? We all want a good life. And, and this burning, that question, that desire has been in the heart of humanity forever. And the Athenians, they wanted a good life. And they sat around. The pointy-headed guys, they sat around. They thought about these things. How do we have a good life? What is the good life? And the good life was a life that was filled with happiness. Sounds good, right? It was a life that was flourishing, that was fulfilling, that had purpose and meaning. And so they developed philosophies of how to have a good life. Some turned to blatant just religion. I'm going to worship Athena, and this is how I'm going to have this good life and be rewarded by Athena and be blessed. But in the passage, we're told of two major schools of thought, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These were the two dominant schools of philosophy in the Greco-Roman world that were, were teaching this is how you have a good life. Their approaches were very different. Stoics, they, they said, hey, look, there's all kinds of things that stop us from having a good life, and a lot of them we can't control. You get sick, we have war, we have famines, we have diseases, we have natural disasters, and all of these things, they kind of interrupt our zen, don't they? They disturb our calm. They create anxiety and discontentment and they interfere with a good life. And so if you wanna have a good life, you have to learn how to accept these things. 
Accept the things that you cannot control. Control the things in your life that you can control. This is how you have a good life. And so, you know, use your reason and live by certain virtues like wisdom and courage and justice and self-control to control those emotions that get out of hand that then create behaviors that can absolutely bring chaos into your life. Sounds a whole lot like cognitive behavior theory that is pretty dominant in our, our world today. This, the, the Epicureans, they came at it from a different perspective. They said the reason why you're not having a good life, you're not happy and you're filled with fear is you're afraid of death. You fundamentally are afraid of dying and what's gonna happen after death. And you're doing all of this stuff to appease the gods, hoping that when it's all said and done, you don't end up in Hades and the bad place of torment and punishment. Well, I got news for you. The good life is very easy to have once you realize this is all there is. There's nothing after this. When we die, there is no afterlife. You just rot and go into the ground. And so therefore, when you live this life to have the good life, then live in a way, do whatever it is that brings you happiness. Create a life for yourself that brings you joy. And those things that produce pleasure and, or happiness and feelings that are positive and good energy, that pursue that, pursue pleasure. Surround yourself with the people who have good vibes and get rid of the people who have bad vibes. Does any of this sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, this is all through our culture. This is, this is how so many in our world today live their lives. So that they have these philosophical idolatries, religious idolatries, cultural idolatries. They were proud of being Athenians. I mean, this is the, the, the group who gave us democracy, who gave us, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I mean, these are the people who did all this, right? Some of you didn't get that, but others of you appreciate the reference to Socrates. Anyway, um, you know, so this is who they are. Um, their city had been destroyed a couple of times and they rebuilt it. It was beautiful, made of marble. I mean, these, these statues and their buildings are just, I mean, just think of a, a city that all looks like the best of Washington, D.C., not the worst of Washington, D.C., right? It's a beautiful city. They're proud of their identity. They're proud of their heritage as Athenians, as the, as the center of the intellectual universe of the ancient world, as the, father, the founders of democracy where freedoms are given. They're proud of who they are, and it's important that they look a certain way. And so their homes, they put pride in making their homes nice. They pursued material and financial prosperity and success because face was important. You know, how you put yourself before the world and your friends and your coworkers and family and your status, these things were very important to them. And yet another form of idolatry, religious, philosophical, cultural idolatry. And God hates all of it. Why? Because it is a willful rejection of and rebellion against God. It is saying to God, you are telling me this is who I am and this is what will give me the good life and this is what I need to have the good life. I don't accept that. 
I think this is what I must have to have the good life, and I'm going to pursue this instead. You see, in idolatry, with idolatry, we judge God, and we judge what God tells us about ourselves and about how to live life and how to relate to him and have this life that we desire, and we conclude after entering into judgment with all of our wisdom and all of our intellect that we are smarter and wiser than God and we conclude that what he says is insufficient, that it's wrong, that in some way, essentially, he's not actually right. He's not perfect. He's not holy. That's what idolatry says. It's saying, God, you are not good enough for me to accept what you say about me and to trust in you. Instead, I am going to trust in someone else or something else to bring me the life that I want to have, to give me the happiness and the fulfillment that I am seeking. And God hates this. As it's reflected in the commandments, he sees idolatry as a rebellious rejection act of hatred towards him. Idolatry at its core is seeking to rob God of his glory and his perfection and his holiness. It is saying you are not enough for me and I know better than you and God will not have it. He will not have it. God is passionate for his glory. As it says in the commandment, he is a jealous God, he's jealous for his glory. And idolatry seeks to rob him of that glory. Idolatry, church, is the universal sin of humanity. Every human being on this planet who has ever lived except Jesus is plagued with idolatry. And it's often the sin beneath all the other sins that so much capture our energy and our attention and our effort. It's idolatry. Some of you here today, you may very well might be like the Athenians. You, you aren't a Christian. You are not following Christ. And, and your life is ruled by idolatry. You need to understand that this morning. You want that good life. We all do. And you have determined for yourself, this is what it looks like. And this is what I have to do to get it. Understand who you are this morning. You have done exactly what the Athenians have done. You have created for yourself a functional religion and functional savior to give you what you think you need. And it's idolatry. And it is a sin that will condemn you for eternity. Others of us are, are Christians, but idolatry is robbing us of the joy of our salvation. It's hindering our growth as believers. Idolatry is a huge problem for Christians. If you don't believe me, just read through the epistles where the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, they are writing to Christians, and this is what you'll see. My beloved, flee from idolatry. Over and again, you see this kind of command and exhortation from the apostles to Christians. 
The Apostle John, at the end of his first epistle, after he has talked about God's love for us and our love for God and everything that it means to be a Christian, and it's interesting how, like, almost at the end, he goes, oh, by the way, little children. And he's talking to adults, not little kids. He's talking, he's the father figure at this point, well into in his 80s and 90s as a, an apostle. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why would he say this? It's because idolatry is a huge problem for Christians. It is the quiet, hidden sin that is driving and motivating our most, our more obvious surface level sins. Those sins that you pray about before we take the Lord's Supper. And it seems like you pray about them on a regular basis they capture all your attention and your energy and they fill you with so much you know, guilt and sometimes shame. Those surface sins, that's not the actual problem. The actual problem is the sin beneath that sin, which is idolatry. Now, if you think I'm making something up here, Consider with me Colossians chapter three, verse five. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you catch that? Covetousness, whoa, time out. Isn't there a commandment that says, thou shalt not covet, what? Your neighbor's wife and his money and his house and especially his boat, right? Thou shalt not covet, these things. And, and why is that there? Right? You're, you're, you're saying, I need that thing. I need that woman. I need that house. I need that job. I need that money. I need those clothes. I need that. I'll leave the boat alone. I need all of that to have happiness and to have the life that I want to have and fulfillment. I want what he has so that I can have that kind of life. And you're coveting it. You're desiring it. It's sinful. It's a 10th commandment. But Paul says, oh, by the way, that 10th commandment is also idolatry. Because behind that desire to have whatever this thing is, is this underlying belief that God is not sufficient to give you what you actually need. And instead, you are worshiping the created thing instead of the creator. You're relying upon something that has been created, a blessing given by God, something that under normal circumstances might be perfectly good and fine and healthy, and you're elevating it, and this is what we all do. We elevate it to an ultimate, and we entrust it, and we look to it, the created thing, instead of the creator. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter one is happening throughout the world to people who even though they, they have all of nature and they have the law of God in their hearts, they are dying in their sins, separated from God, rejecting the revelation that God has given them. And why? Because claiming to be wise, they're actually fools. And they're exchanging the things that have been created by God for a lie and they're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And that's what happens with covetousness. We're investing in those things. It's a subtle sin. You notice in the 
Ten Commandments, when God says, don't make, you know, graven images out of, and he gives this list of things, those things are not intrinsically bad. Okay? You know, dogs are good. I'll leave that alone. Okay? You know, I won't go to the other side of the fence, but dogs are good. But so, you know, making your poodle the center of your universe, that's not good. Certainly making an idol and bowing down to it is not good. So think about that before you stuff him when he dies and put him on the wall. Anyway, all right? <laughs> we take these things that are blessings from God and we make them into ultimates. You know, here's the thing about us as Christians. Christians, our idolatry is not an outright rejection of God. We love God. We know God, gives, but we just feel like we need a little bit more. We add to God. That's what we do. God and this thing will get me, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's what we're doing. And anything can end up filling this thing. One of the biggest things, I mean, we think about money. Oh, that guy worships money. Look at the money. He, man, his whole life is committed to worshiping money. It's all about money. Okay? But you look at people who worship money. Some of them spend it on all, like it's going out crazy. Other people don't spend any of it. They hoard it. They keep it. They're tight. Why? Two different people. Money differently. Money is, they lust after money. But what's the sin beneath that? It's idolatry. The person who's spending all the time, who buys and they have this need to look a certain way and be accepted by other people to impress and to be seen as significant. And the way I'm gonna get that significance and that, those, that admiration from others is to have all these nice things that I can show off, that I've made it, I'm prosperous, look at me. So the outward sin of lusting after money and greed is the surface sin. Behind it is this, this lack of understanding who we are in Christ and how we are significant in Him as his people. The person who's so tight with the money, you know, they're, they're not ostentatious, but their need isn't to look good. Their need is to feel secure so that when life gets out of control or things go bad, I'm okay because I've got enough money. I am building security for myself. And the money represents security. In both instances, the underlying sin is idolatry. There's a conviction that God is not good enough to provide for me what I think that I need. And I don't agree with what he says my life should be. It's idolatry. As any good thing can be idolatrous. Parents, number one temptation for you with idolatry, I think, will, be, will surround your children. The number of, of parents whose lives get off the rail and they give into idolatry because they make, the, they make their life all about their children. And we always use such great, I wanna give them every advantage I possibly can. I wanna maximize their potential. I want them to be successful in life, which is good. I mean, none of us want our kids to be a failure, right? And so I'm gonna do all of this and, and, and we throw our lives into our children. And don't think twice about everything that we do, which then violates the fifth commandment. And we don't remember that the Sabbath day is holy. Instead, we fill our children with alternatives because it's idolatry. We take our Sundays and rather than teaching our children the importance of God, that, that, that our children aren't actually the center of anyone's universe, that God is the center of the universe. 
We give ourselves over to what our world says. This is how you raise your children. Idolatry. I got to move on. I may not even make it through this sermon. (laughs) I'll, I'll speed it up. Dynamic evangelism begins by winsomely connecting to those searching for answers. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and they took him and he brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Isn't that interesting? How different that is from confrontational evangelism. One of our ladies in a small group was telling us about being in a restaurant recently. I think it was in downtown Melbourne. Maybe it's not more else. And they're having, br- they're having a, a brunch, you know, with the quiche and all that other good stuff. When, uh, apparently, when, some, when somebody comes in from the street, like a street evangelist, a street preacher, and begins to preach in the restaurant, going from table to table and talking to people, interrupting the meal. And, and when they get to their table, a table filled with Christians, and they kind of say, hey, we're Christians, you know. No, you think that turned him off? Oh, absolutely not. He began to go after them with Bible verses, and he was just obnoxious. And she said he was so arrogant and proud and judgmental and condemnatory. And finally, we just said, get out of here, leave us alone. How different is that from Paul? I mean, that guy didn't get invited to sit down and enjoy some quiche. Paul would have been, right? And look, at, look what happens here. He, he's winsome. He's able to connect with people across the spectrum. That word winsome, we use it a lot around here. It's an important word at Covenant. It comes from the old English word. We don't really use it much anymore, but it means pleasant, joyful. We have a, a derivative of it. When we say that person has a winning personality, That's the same thing, a winning person. When we say if someone has a winning personality, what do we mean? Well, he ain't a jerk. (laughs) He's somebody you want to be around. He's somebody that you enjoy talking with, that you enjoy their company, that you find them interesting and engaging, and they're they're civil and polite. They're they're, they're somebody you want to invite to a party. Sounds a whole lot like Jesus, right? People in, in, in his day wanted Jesus to come and hang out with them and come to their parties and come to their houses. Why? Because he was winsome. And it's through this winsomeness, you see it. Paul reasoned with them. He conversed with them. And and, and that's a great example. He had conversations, not arguments. And the end result, we don't understand everything you're saying, but we sure would like to hear more. Would you come over? Do you get that? Do you see how profound that is? This is why dynamic evangelism is so important. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what you want. You want that connection to be made in such a way that instead of turning people off by how we interact with them, if they ever reject us, it's the rejection of the message because the gospel itself offends them. Paul didn't offend. He was winsome. Even in his sermon, he connected to them through quoting their poets. He, he knew the culture. He knew the, the environment. He knew the times that he was living in. So how do we do that today? How do we winsomely connect with others who are searching for answers? May I suggest it starts by humbly seeing ourselves as idolaters who are in constant need of the gospel the power of the gospel and the grace of God in our lives. 
It starts with a, a posture of a humble person who, if it were not from God's grace, where would we be? That's where it starts. And it means that we study the culture and we learn what's going on in people's lives. We, we listen and ask questions and we have these conversations and they're conversations. Church, no one has ever, I believe, been argued into the family of God. No one's ever been debated into the family of God. At the end of the debate, no one's like, well, you know what? Your arguments were better than mine, so I guess I'll go ahead and trust in Jesus. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Dynamic evangelism is, oh, we have a great need for it. It begins with winsomely connecting to those who are searching for answers. And finally, dynamic evangelism requires both the bad and the good news of the gospel to be communicated at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way. You know, as you go through this message, and we don't have the time to do so, you see why this is, I refer to this as dynamic evangelism. The word dynamic is from the Greek word dunamis, and it means effective, powerful. It's something that can adapt to the situation at hand and still be used to bring about results. And this is what you see, this dynamic. It can change how it, how it is done, changes based upon the environment. It's dynamic. And you see these things that are in place in this sermon. There's some explicit factors that make dynamic evangelism what it is and why it's so effective and powerful. The very first one is the timing. The timing was right. The Apostle Paul was invited to share the message. Again, people don't come into the kingdom of God and then a family of God because we bust down the door and cram the gospel down their throat, whether they like it or not. It doesn't work like that. You know, the great thing about believing that God is sovereign and over all of salvation is that we have the, the peace to enter into anything dealing with evangelism by, by praying and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an implicit factor in this. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit trusting in his guidance. And when we do this, the Holy Spirit will guide us when the time is right, as we connect with people and we converse and we establish these relationships. At some point, the timing will be there and it will be obvious. And at that moment, we take advantage of the opportunity and redeem the time. But dynamic evangelism waits for the timing to be right. It, it uses a form of delivery that is appropriate for the context. The Apostle Paul, he's preaching a sermon here. And it's a different kind of sermon. It's not like this sermon. It's kind of more of a TED Talk, if you think about it. <laughs> it's an Athenian version of a TED Talk. It's what he does. And he, and he gives this very high level and he, and he begins to bring it down and bring it down and bring it down, but it's engaging and it's concise and it's filled with the word of God and it's filled with, with ways that the people can understand. But at the end of the day, he's bringing what we would call a sermon. Most of us aren't gonna bring sermons, but you'll be given opportunities to share your testimony. Many of us, 
We'll have somebody come to us that we have befriended that are a part of our life and that at some critical point in their life, maybe something's not going right. They'll begin to talk to you about it and they'll share it. And, and that is an opportunity. Let's just call it like a counseling environment where they're asking, what would you do? Because blah, 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 blah. This is the opportunity to now bring the gospel into their life how God has worked in your life in a similar situation through Christ. It may be through your testimony or counseling or taking through a book of John or, or even just going through the gospel. At some point, maybe you'll have people who might even ask, why, why, do you, why are you a Christian? Well, hello, there's an invitation. Timing is right. There it is. Open it up. Now we give it. And if another thing you notice here, though, and most importantly, is that the message that he gave was uncompromising when it came to the gospel. There was the bad news, and there was the good news. We do no, Christian, we do no one a favor by candy-coating or voiding the hard parts of the gospel. And so after Paul does all of this sermon and he connects with the audience, you see him in verse 29, finally bringing it home, and he says, okay, Thinking about all of this, you are God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like a gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Your time of ignorance, God has overlooked. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's the bad news, Athenians. Love you, respect you, but all of these idols that you have created and all of these philosophical systems that you're relying upon and all of the things that we look to as our functional saviors, these simply come out of the imagination of the human mind and they have no eternal merit and value. You're on the wrong course of life. That's what verse 29 is saying. It's the bad news the good news. But God has fixed a day, and he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Dynamic evangelism is looking for the right timing. It's trusting in the Holy Spirit. It understands that we don't, we're not in charge of salvation. God is. We're an instrument in his hands and we don't cram it down their throat. We don't argue them into heaven. We don't outwit them with our intellect. It is the spirit of God speaking through us, giving the good news of the gospel and appealing to their need to commit to Christ. There is power in this. As Brian told us last week, when he preached from Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, if you look at this story and you look at dynamic evangelism, you might be tempted to say, well, Jerry, sounds great. But at the end of this story, I don't see them singing 25 verses of just as I am and having 3,000 people walk down the aisle to be saved like at Pentecost. In fact, most people seem to reject it. Some, a lot of them mocked him. But some men joined him and believed. And we get three or four names. So did he fail? Did the Apostle Paul fail? Absolutely not. Salvation is of the Lord, and the Lord never fails to bring his chosen sons and daughters into his family at the appointed time. Salvation is of the Lord, and Paul did not fail. How many times 
Do we avoid even engaging because of the fear of failure? We've tried it in the past. We've worked with someone and they never believe. And so we just say, you know what? I'm just not gifted at this. I just, this is for those people who are good at this, not me. The fear of failure, the fear of blowing it, the fear of being embarrassed causes us to avoid what is such an honor for us to share the gospel with others. I was sent a devotional this morning by Scotty Smith. He, he preached here for us, and Scotty sends out a devotional to a lot of guys and gals in ministry. And this morning, his devotional, he, he quoted Jack Miller, who had mentored him. And he said, Jack Miller always told me and reminded me, there is no wasted sharing of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. There's no wasted sharing of the gospel. If nothing else, when we do so, God is glorified. And in other times, God uses the gospel to bring the dead heart to life. Or he uses it to harden the foolish heart. Or he uses our sharing of the gospel to plant a seed pregnant with eternal life in the soil of the heart that is now going to begin to get watered and flourish until it brings about new life. And if nothing else, that sharing of the gospel, it humbles our own hearts and it gladdens our hearts and it strengthens us as we're reminded of what God has done for us. Let's think about that this week. Father, thank you for the example we see here. We know our need is so great the separation that comes about because of idolatry. And Lord, our world is it's not better than at the Athens. The idolatry, we may not have, have temples with 40-foot statues, but we have football stadiums that hold 100,000 who will worship a team. Our idolatries just take a different form, but at the core, it's all the same. So Father, I pray first of all for the person here who right now may be dead in their sins. They're like that guy at the beginning of the message. They've not committed their life to Christ. Would you convict them of their need for salvation? And for those of us who are Christians, Lord, help us take the time this week to see where is idolatry controlling our lives, guiding our lives, maybe ruining aspects of our testimony or our families. Give us insight to see. and Give us a heart that is eager to share the good news of Jesus with those with whom we can connect. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.